Welcome to Wholesale Change, the webcast and podcast from Distribution Strategy Group, where we provide thought leadership for wholesale change agents like you, because if you're on this broadcast, that's probably what you are. My name is Ian Heller. I'll be your co-host today, along with my business partner, the fabulous Emperor of Excel and the Doctor of Distribution, Jonathan Bine, PhD. Hello, Jonathan. It's getting piled higher and deeper every day. <laughs> Ian, how are you doing? I'm doing great, man. We have the best topic today. I'm so excited to have this conversation. Um, and uh, it's which distribution verticals are at most risk of disruption. And I would encourage, as usual, our audience to weigh in with their thoughts, because I think this one's going to be a little controversial. Also, I don't think anybody really knows the answer to this question. So we're going to take a position, but there could be other views, right? Absolutely. So let's jump in here and... Uh, you know, so as, as we were preparing these slides, we were thinking about, okay, what affects ex exposure to disruption? And when we talk about disruption, we're talking about outside entrants that are getting into selling B2B supplies. So everyone knows about Amazon business in this industry, but you know, walmart.com has a whole bunch of products from distributors as well as just a bunch of stuff that businesses buy. eBay business and industrial sells a lot of new goods. I mean, I think eBay still has that use good reputation with some people, but they sell a whole bunch of new stuff. You've got Alibaba that's building a B2B marketplace, Google Shopping that sells a bunch of stuff from distributors. So, you know, when you have those, those are some of the largest and most well-capitalized and sophisticated companies in the world selling B2B, competing with distributors, and some distribution verticals have already been very negatively affected and others don't seem to have been affected at all. So we wanted to go think about, well, what could be the causes? And this is the list that we came up with, right? Yeah, and it's it's really about the threat of new entrants. So if we look at this from a Michael, Michael Porter competitive strategy standpoint, if you're familiar with the five forces, one of the five forces is the threat of new entrants. Um, and the companies that you just mentioned are new entrants into this space. We don't typically think of Walmart in the B2B space, right? But they are a, a real threat to uh, a lot of what's going on. The other piece of it is, is that this is in large part about digital disruption, right? Um, yeah. I mean, that's, that, that's one of the main themes in what we're looking at here. So um, let's, let, let's jump in, Ian. Okay. So, uh, you know, we're, we're going to get to a two by two matrix because we were able to narrow this down to two factors. Although, you know, some people might take issue with that. But first we thought about, okay, when we, when we think about specific companies and the nature of the companies that seem to be more disrupted or not, what are the factors that we see? So this is sort of a brainstorm list. The first one was that distributors that have intermediaries involved in their, in their sales channels seem to be less affected by disruptors than others. So if you sell through to company, or excuse me, if you sold a lot to contracting companies, you know, HVAC contractors, plumbing contractors, refrigeration, uh, electrical contractors, et cetera, you seem to be less affected by disruption than someone who's selling directly to end, end users of products, right? And is that because the, the, the contractor is adding value to what's being sold? I think it gets back. I think it's, I think it's the, 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 the sophistication of the application myself, right? So okay. if, uh, if, 
if I need a condenser fan motor, most most end users can't do that themselves. They're calling a contractor to do the work. Um, and the contractor may need some kind of technical support to figure out which motor to buy, right? Um, or, or may need it like in the next hour. And as good as the deliveries are from these big disruptors, they're not, you know, that you can't run into the counter and pick it up yet at an Amazon distribution center, right? But you can at a Johnstone supply branch. Correct. Um, I think uh, also products that become part of a finished good, right? So if it's a construction project or a manufactured product and the product actually winds up in the structure or in the manufactured good, then distributors who sell those kinds of products seem to be less prone to being disrupted than customers who aren't selling those kinds of products, right? And that is actually reflected in the next, um, in, in a related item, if the products were specified on blueprints, so it's selected by an engineer or architect, then it's less likely that that product's gonna go to a marketplace. And there typically is a long lead time before the product is really needed. So, you know, I mean, I've, I've worked in uh, more in the construction space than the, and then in the manufactured goods space, but sometime in both. And the reality is that, you know, if you're supporting a large construction project, you have weeks or months to deliver most of the materials and order them because there's this whole supply chain and, and, and the product is identified by an engineer or architect way in advance. And so there just isn't this need to have a you know, drone deliver it to the job site tomorrow. Yeah, there's definitely not the immediacy. Um, but what I would say is that there's, depending on the sector, there's potentially a lot of competition with, with existing players to get that business yes. in the first place. Right? Oh yeah, this is about protection from disruptors, not against direct competitors. Yeah. Um, yep. And then the size and weight of the order or the size and weight of the product. So distributors sell a lot of big heavy goods that require flatbed truck delivery or better yet, flatbed trucks with a job site forklift on the back. They seem to be less prone to being disrupted versus companies that sell small orders that can be, you know, pick packed and shipped and delivered by a common carrier, a small package carrier. The technical complexity of the product. So, you know, the electronic components can be delivered by common carrier, but they're very complex. And so the end users have a lot of questions that they need to have answered and need a lot of specialized information and often need a lot of technical support. So those verticals tend to be less prone to being disrupted. Uh, the other that, oh, and that seems related to the first one where the inter intermediaries are involved, such as contractors, right? No, not necessarily. I mean, I might be a design engineer and I'm actually gonna be using the product to put into my own prototype, but okay. I am a sophisticated person. So there's no intermediary, but I think, I think, I think the, if there's an inter intermediary involved, it does often indicate that there's a more technically complex product, but you also have technically complex products where that's not the case. Correct. Okay. And then the technical sophistication of the buyer, which is just the other side of the coin of the product. Um, and then the incidence of unplanned need. So if you have a lot of unplanned needs, then you are more likely to go to an Amazon business, or one of these other disruptors, because they have a wide variety of products and can get them to you very quickly. Uh, if you don't have many unplanned needs, then the advantages of those uh, alternative disruptors is less. Fair enough? Absolutely. Okay. So as I was looking at these last night, Jonathan, then you and I talked about this today, it felt like, okay, these really fall into what I first thought were three categories, but we want them getting them down to two. And the three categories that, the, that I originally came up with were technical sophistication of the application, 
lead time and easy common carrier delivery. So I went through and color coded these and said, well, complexity of the application really covers several of these. You know, intermediaries involved, product becomes part of a finished good, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, lead time really covers two of them, which are specified products and incidents of unplanned need. And then the easy common carrier delivery is really about the size and weight of the product or the order. Right. And then we decided that actually we could simplify further because the reality is that if you look at the ones that are lead times, they're both about um, planned plan purchases. So they're on blueprints, so they're a planned purchase or they're not an unplanned purchase. So that took us to this. So, and I changed complexity of the product to complexity of the application because you might have a simple product, like it might be a bearing, but it's been specified on a blueprint for a manufactured good. And by the way, you need a hundred thousand of them. So the complexity is not, oh, and, and they need to be delivered JIT, right? So the complexity is not really in the product, but the complexity is in the application or the transaction. And so we changed complexity of the product to complexity of the application. Um, and we eliminated lead time and we got down to these two variables. So we believe, and we you know, love getting people to argue with us. We often argue with each other as regular listeners know, but we believe that you could do, and we did a two by two matrix of complexity of application and easy common carrier delivery, and then sort various distribution verticals on that grid. Shall we proceed? Let's go. <laughs> Okay, so here's what we came up with. So if you take the complexity of application, which could be technical or service, you know, so for example, vending machines in a customer's plant, that's a fairly complex application based on the servicing of that. And it's expensive, you're putting capital uh, equipment in place. Or if you're replenishing bin stocks, you know, like Lawson Products does a lot of that, right? So that's not something that the disruptors do right now and probably won't do for a while is send people, maybe ever, is send people out to, you know, take handfuls of products and put them in customer bins to replenish them, All right? That, that becomes, a, that becomes a complex application compared to picking, packing, and shipping and putting in a common carrier uh, or setting up via a common carrier. And then on the left-hand side, you've got small package carrier delivery, which means that if your products are big and heavy, then they wind up in the bottom of this grid. And if they're simple, they wind up in the bottom, excuse me, in the, in the top right of this grid. So basically what you have is in the top right, we have products that can be delivered via, via small package carriers like UPS, uh, but they've got low complexity of the application. And there we see office supplies, which was arguably along with Jansan, the first vertical really crushed by disruptors. Jonathan? Um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're tightly linked. Actually, a, a number of the folks that do Jansan also do office supplies and vice versa. Um, so it is is the most prone and the most vulnerable of the sectors that, that we've considered in this analysis so far. Yeah, and office supplies, by the way, most of the office supplies companies had their own delivery fleets, but they weren't, that was just sort of part of the value proposition those products could just as well be delivered by small package carriers. Uh, and that's really what the disruptors are doing, right? Right. Um, 
And so they're simple, right? I mean, there's not much complexity to a post-it note, not much complexity to, you know, copy paper. And so it was really easy for these disruptors to move in. And, you know, you remember that chart that we did about staples, Jonathan? Where yes, the, absolutely. I was thinking of that. Yeah. So they grew right through the Great Recession. And then Amazon Business launched and they declined rapidly and were eventually taken private. And so we think that the decline of Staples, which was a superstar, remember that book Staples for Success? And, you know, they were the, the poster child of the superstore. And, you know, they were, they launched this category killer in office supplies. And then they got killed. Well, that's too strong. They got hurt a lot by Amazon business. It was interesting also you and I spoke with the office supplies company recently who is branching out in terms of what they do and the things that are stickier um, there's, there's a whole if, if you are an office supplies distributor and you're selling to you know mid-sized customers of in a variety of industries there's a whole bunch of other things that you can do for them that are related to office supplies so this particular one was looking at how do we go into computer and data oriented things, right? How do we start to set up computers, which has more of a value added flavor. But I'm, I'm mentioning this because I think it's a, um, it's symptomatic of the fact that of what's happened to office supplies is that it's been hurt very badly by the likes of Amazon and, and power players like that. Yeah. So this individual we talked to is a visionary, right? I agree. And he, he took them into 3D printing supplies, which works like, you know, replenishing uh, printers and you can lease the machines, et cetera, and break room supplies and a whole bunch of other value-added services and built a really nice business right in the face of not just Staples and Office Depot, but Amazon business. Um, but most distributors don't do that. So what prevents these companies? I mean, Staples had a whole bunch of really smart people working for them. And they, did, they still didn't respond. Why can't distributors innovate and respond to these, these disruptors? Takes a long time to turn around a big ship. Yeah, I think that's true. And I also think, you know, if you think about what Clayton Christensen wrote in uh, The Innovator's Dilemma, you know, if you don't have a separate innovation lab, then these innovations get killed by operating managers who have no use for them in the short term. Yeah, and I think... Um, to put it a little bit bluntly, I, th I think a large swath of distributors, even if they have e-commerce, are still operating out of a model that's 75 to 100 years old. It's just with a bit of a e-commerce add-on, but the model mm -hmm. is still pretty much the model it was, you know, when their when their grandparents started the business. Right, and you put fasteners. Go ahead. Is, is, is that too harsh? I think it's, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with the people who lead most distribution companies. I think they have never, the industry's just never been disrupted before. And so I think most industries when they're first going through disruption display these same characteristics. There are a lot of very, very well operated distributors out there, but they don't have innovation orientations and core competencies because they never had to. I mean, you could just grow the business by being a great operator. I mean, look, in my experience, the best distributor CEOs are phenomenal operators. I mean, they can squeeze EBIT out of an income mm -hmm. statement and they right. can get their working capital to perform really, really well. I mean, they're great operators. They haven't had, you know, if you had a, a, a CEO who was a great innovator, they probably weren't in distribution to begin with. And if they were, they probably weren't that great because 
There's a difference between an innovator and an operator in many cases. So I don't think there's anything wrong with the companies, but I think now that disruption is here, distributors have to learn how to be innovators really fast. Really beautifully stated. I like that innovator versus operator distinction. Yep. Um, it's just the way people are wired. So you put fasteners or we put fasteners sort of in the middle. Uh, that's that's the one that stands out as being closest to the center. What's your thinking on that, Jonathan? I'd like to hear from Joe DeMarco. <laughs> He's willing to weigh in. Oh, good. Um, but, I, but I think it also might depend a little bit on whether it's industrial versus construction fasteners. I, I would mm -hmm. wonder if there's a, a difference in the, the nature of the things that ties back to um, the specified piece that you had on the on the prior slide. Um, I'm sensing that the it, it really is right in about the middle on all of these things in terms of delivery. So let's see, let's see if Joe has weighed in. Come on, Joe. So here here's so while we're waiting for that, I think a lot of times fasteners are small orders that are needed quickly and they can be delivered by common carrier. And in those cases, they are you know, potentially disrupted by other sources. But I actually think if, if any, as I've been thinking about this, we might have moved this to the left into a more complex application, Jonathan, because most of the time end users don't really know what fasteners they need. They don't even know what fastener they're looking at, right? Mm -hmm. And and I know there've been various companies that have tried to create software tools like, and, and maybe someone succeeded, but the ones I've seen didn't seem to, make a difference in the marketplace, you know, so you'd have a, you'll have a fastener and you'd put a, a, a penny by or a quarter by it. Right. And then the software would figure out what the fastener was, but that just gives you size and dimensions. It doesn't tell you the material that it's made out of, et cetera. And so you're really for the foreseeable future, you're going to need some people expertise to choose fasteners. And also many times they are uh, specified and many times they do need some kind of scheduled delivery to a factory or a job site. So even though oftentimes they can be shipped in small quantities, I, th I think in general fasteners have a bigger moat around their business than we've given credit for here when we first did this chart. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Um, what about safety? What's your view on that? Um, I think you and I had a slightly different view. Yeah. Um, I think I think there's a part of safety that's actually low complexity of the application. I mean, we had it here more on the high complexity side of things, um, but I think there's a there's a part of safety that looks part of it looks looks almost like the MRO world where you have people reordering stuff. There's a semi-consumable flavor to it. Um, once they know what they're ordering, they, they just reorder it. Um, yeah, I, mean, I guess there's some complexity to putting an N95 mask on. Um, not really, not really. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Well, we, as consumers were told not to try that. Right. Right. Um, you know, we were, we were told not to, 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 to do that with when COVID came out, but there are certainly much more sophisticated, uh, safety solutions that smart companies both. Uh, industrial and construction and and elsewhere are providing well it's funny because uh in the n95 world you know they make an n95 mask that's got a valve in it right mm -hmm. and the point of the valve is that it closes when you breathe in so it protects the user from bringing breathing in particulates mm -hmm. and when you breathe out the valve opens and there's no filtration on the valve right 
So when you see people wearing an N95 mask with a valve, it's actually defeating the very purpose of the of having an N95 mask, which is preventing your breath from getting out into the air, right? Right. Yeah. But well, people this is know. about me. I, I don't. I don't care about you. This is but just it, about me. But it looks like a more sophisticated mask, but it's actually not. I mean, it's actually defeating the purpose of that. You know, they're saying that why you should wear a mask. I'm not trying to generate a political argument, but the you know the point is, if you're going to wear a mask to protect others having one with a with a filter with a valve in it defeats the purpose of it but people don't know that right and yep. and I th so i think there are a lot of ways that that things can go wrong in the world of safety if you don't know what you're doing there's a lot of training involved but i think you're also right you know gloves and regular dust masks and hard hats and you know you don't anybody can just reorder those on a regular basis from wherever they want them what are some other ones on here that are interesting for you? Well, I think your distinction between electronic components for design versus for production for OEM, um, that would be a good one. Why don't, why don't we delve into that? Yeah, so the real thing there to me is that they're both complex for different reasons. For, if it's for design and you're dealing with an electrical engineer or you know somebody like that who's trying to choose components to do prototyping with, by the way, that's a huge industry that I didn't know about until I worked for Newark Electronics a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but those engineers are like really sophisticated, as you might guess, since they're electrical engineers. And they really want to buy from someone who knows what they're talking about. And this is why, you know, DigiKey and others have thrived in that sector for a long time. And that, you know, even though a lot of those components are available from other sources online, the lion's share of those sales still go to those distributors because they have expertise in it. Um, for OEM, it's a totally well, I, different. I, Go ahead. Yeah, but I'm also imagining in the in the design world, to the extent that it's an electrical engineer designer, some material portion of the time they're paying on their own credit card. Uh, I don't think it's their own the, credit the, card. Or, or, or yeah, or, or the credit card that they have for the business, because the right. purchase is small enough that it fits into that that credit limit that they have. Right. Correct. It's an e-procurement card, right? Yeah. Uh, procurement card. Um, now, on the electronic components for OEM, these are a little different because in a lot of cases, these are not being shipped by a small package carrier because there are pallets of them. Sometimes in small orders, they are. They're still, they're still chosen by uh, electrical engineers, but they're specified on drawings for manufactured products. And so it's really a different type of transaction. It's a much larger transaction. It takes place way, way far in advance of the need in most cases. The quantities are often very large. Um, and so it's different, but just the expertise drives both of these over to the left. So I would say electronic components for OEM is even more protected from disruption than the electronic components for design. But in both cases, there's pretty good moats around these, these, these verticals, this vertical. Well, uh, to give you a quantitative feel for the complexity at the extreme end, in electronic components for OEM, we were working with an electronic um, products distributor. And they had an order, I hope you're all sitting down, that had 58,000 lines in it. Wow. 58,000 lines. Man, that, uh, that guy was busy that, the, the, for that month entering those on, with the Z procurement card. A little bit of picking, packing, and shipping going on there, huh? <laughs> and those, but what was the lead time? Probably weeks or months, right? Oh, months for sure, yeah. Yeah, right. Okay, and so the other, we, we also made a distinction between construction materials and lumber, right? 
Yes. Uh, I think it'd be helpful for our, our audience to, to clarify what we mean by that. Because some people might, might conflate them or, or equate them, right? Yeah, I think they are often delivered together, by the way. But construction materials are uh, more complex, right? So this is stuff that's used in concrete construction, like, you know, chemicals and specialty fasteners and, you know, anchors and that kind of stuff. And Dry lumber wall. is just... Drywall, insulation, right? Right. Ceiling, right. Uh, shelving systems or wall systems, right? Right. And oftentimes the lumber is just a part of that, but sometimes people just order lumber by itself, you know, send me a pallet of two by fours mm -hmm. uh, or whatever. And so, but the reality is in both cases, it doesn't really matter because you're pretty well protected from the online players. Now, because it's not a small package delivery, I mean, because I know Amazon's got their own fleet, but the Amazon trucks that I've seen look like you modernized UPS trucks, right? They're just big panel well, vans. Slightly longer, perhaps, or maybe that's just an illusion of with the, with the way they've got their logo set up. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. They, they, but they're just a new fleet in the neighborhood. I think I see more of those now than I see UPS trucks. Isn't that crazy? For sure. Um, but uh but for the foreseeable future anyway, I don't think any of those companies are going to get into delivering this big heavy stuff, but I could well be wrong. What do you think? Am I wrong or what would, what would prevent them or encourage them to get into this bigger, heavy stuff? I, I think it depends on the player. So, you know, if we look at Amazon, which is the one we always start with, Amazon can do whatever they set their mind to. I am absolutely certain of that. The question is, what are they likely to do? And they've got a product roadmap or a segment roadmap of things they want to target that are, that are possibly based on a quadrant like what you've created here, Ian. Um, and so they could get into lumber. Um, juice may not be worth the squeeze right now. They could get into gases and welding if they yeah. wanted to because right. Jeff Bezos can do whatever he wants. What are they likely to do? I don't think they're likely to get into yeah gases and welding they'll, they'll pick off the safety component of gases and welding they'll pick off some of the hard goods that are sold in gases and welding but they're not going to be they're not going to set up propane you know mixing plants or oxygen mixing plants or you know whatever goes on in these gases and welding places so i think it's what they can do versus what versus what they will do um you know if we if we think about walmart on the other hand i could walmart may already be in the lumber space right um, that would be really a natural. Home Depot is for sure in the lumber space, right? Is Walmart in the lumber space? I wasn't aware of that. They, they could be. If if not, that would be low hanging fruit, and it would not be a it would not be a it'd be a chip shot for them. I don't know, um, man. I don't I don't see it. I, well, uh, I don't see Walmart getting the lumber any more than Amazon. What's the advantage? Because they have local stores. You mean? Mm -hmm. Precisely. Okay. Fair enough. Um, so I, go ahead. So, so again, I think it depends on, on the particular player and what their what their nature of, of of who they are is and who they sell to and what they've been selling historically. Um, I I think this is an adjacent segment for a Walmart. You think it's not, but you know it's 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 not an adjacent segment right now for uh, for Amazon. Well, no, I agree. I will say this: there is no distributor that's one hundred percent immune to any of these disruptors. I mean, because there are situations, I mean, take construction materials, which we, is, you know, arguably the farthest away, wrong or right, in, in our opinion, from vulnerability from disrupt, disruptors. But you know what, whether you're white cap or construction materials or ram tool or anybody else, 
your some of your customers are buying from these disruptors some of the time for business purposes. Yeah, I mean, I think it comes down to the value per cubic foot of of stuff that goes on your truck. And in construction, the materials, the value per cubic foot is just not high enough for, for, for an Amazon to get into. The same reason most of those products are made in America or in North America, right? Because right. you can't, you can't afford to ship them across the ocean. They're not worth the, the, the container space they take up and the weight they, and the weight of the products isn't worth the money of, of for the shipping. Um, right. But, but, but there are still some customers of theirs who are buying online on a regular basis because they have a super easy to use website that those customers are, are used to navigating. And so nobody's hundred percent immune, mm-hmm. right? Um, what about, um, um, material handling? I kind of put that one there arbitrarily. Um, and, uh, oh, Hey, we got a, we got a message from, uh, Lindsay Young, who is our, uh, one of our producer, one of our partner companies. Um, looks like they have lumber on the Walmart marketplace, but it's not sold by Walmart. It's sold to partners. So it's on walmart.com. Okay. So. You win that argument. I bet you they don't sell a lot of it, but I don't really know. I'm not going to take you up on that. <laughs> well, we'll never know. We'll never I'm, know. I'm, one, I'm, I'm up one right now. I just want to I stop know. right there. I'm going to retire. You know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. Okay. Material handling. So, um, you, know, it, it's, here's, you know, it's funny because I, was, I left Granger like 22 years ago. To this day, I still categorize products by the way we categorize the Granger catalog. And in fact, if you go out to my toolbox in my garage, the the uh, labels I have on oh, you get the Granger catalog. Yeah. Oh, it's silent. So a lot of the trees in the Northwest that are burning right now, you know, were used in making this catalog in which you had a party in. No, if we if we if we use them in the catalog, they're not there to be burned. Um, point taken okay. but but the the categories the, you know the, the uh, in in the in the catalog they match up with the categories on my big toolbox in my garage cutting tools and abrasives hand tools it's great isn't that funny and and right now the last Granger catalog I ever have is holding up my laptop okay there you go but anyway so we had we but at Granger we always combine material handling and packaging at least when I was there right and so packaging, you know, that's like uh, boxes and, and, you know, the, the bubble wrap and that kind of stuff and the, the styrofoam peanuts and the tape and the material handling was like the forklift trucks and, and that kind of stuff. And the, the, the boxes and crates that you would use for storage. Now, material handling is kind of an interesting category because you've got, um, you know, a couple of really strong players, right? Um, and yet, and I, but I, don't, I don't have any visibility into how they're being affected by Amazon Business or these other disruptors. Do you? Well, I, but I think that packaging part of what you're talking about is is very prone. I mean, just think of, I mean, Uline is crushing the space, right? Are, are um, they? I don't really know because they're privately held, right? Yeah, but I mean, I, I get a catalog every month. The quality of the catalog gets better. Now they're they're crushing it. Um, so I think that is different from you know the forklift cat dealers uh, kind of kind of what oh, sure. you're talking about. 
Yeah, so, but the, but Uline would be more vulnerable than the cat dealers, not less so. Correct. That, that's what I'm saying. They're they're more they, vulnerable. I mean, they, they're, they're even though they're vulnerable, they are crushing it in that space, and you know they're, they're very well run. Um. So so yes, I'm agreeing with you. But in, in spite of that, Uline seems to be doing very well. Yeah, I don't I don't have any idea. I mean, they're privately held. They don't release any numbers. At least I, maybe they do, and I haven't seen them. I don't haven't really looked. And I still get the catalogs too occasionally. Um, have you ever bought from them? No, and I'm feeling guilty about the amount of print that they're sending me that's just going into the round file. I wonder why they keep mailing you. That's a good question. Yeah. Maybe they need some marketing help. <laughs> Where should they go, Jonathan? Where should, hmm, I might know it's, somebody. It's a conundrum. Um, yes. Yeah, I don't really know. I mean, my impression is that they're doing very well, and, and I have heard that they're very well operated, and that appears to be the case from what I've seen. But, you know, it doesn't feel like that's that different from, than office supplies. So what's... What allows what allows the at least the packaging portion to be thriving, assuming that it is, but the off supplies portion isn't. Well, because there, there can be a value added component, okay, in, in, in certain parts of the packaging world, and I think that's where um, smaller Got packaging it. companies are creating value add. Okay, so if you're if you're running a production line and you want packaging for your to ship your units out. Uh, unless you're a huge manufacturer is going to go directly to some paper company, you're probably going to go through a distributor. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Yes. And that never happens in office supplies. I mean, I, never is probably a strong term, but I don't think anybody's going out there specifying, you know, copy paper or post notes. Almost never. Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, that makes sense. That clears it up for me. Um, and then uh, power transmission that, you know, Clearly, complexity application. That's that probably is as far left as electronic components or close. Is that mm -hmm. is that fair? Absolutely. Um, and then there's a combination. Look look, 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 look at the number of. I mean, so, some of the companies in that space brag about the number of certified engineers and pedigrees they have as part of their marketing, right? right. In terms of yeah. the complexity of the application. And they've got integrators involved that are doing all the programming and connecting. So even if you could, even a lot of the individual components can be shipped. Uh, by small package, unless they're like replacement parts, they're typically going out as a system. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And how yep. much of that, do you have any, I don't really know. Is there, do you have any idea how much of that power transmission business is new versus replacement? Uh, that's really a good question. I, I don't have a sense on that one. But even if it is replacement, but then you got companies like Rockwell that don't sell through the marketplace, those, those disruptors anyway, right? Well, but yeah, I mean, that's part of the power, that, that's more of the electrical automation space than the power transmission. Um, I mean, think about what a, what a motion or a applied industrial cells or general bearing yeah. or somebody like that, um, or, or any of the Parker, right? Any of the Parker distributors. Yeah. Okay. Um, that, that's really more of the space that I had in mind than, than the Rockwell. I mean, there's, a, there's an overlap in the Venn diagrams, um, yeah. but I think th this, is, this is more on that, um, power transmission side than the electrical automation side. Okay, got it. And but I think this this you know this discussion really draws out why we changed the technical complexity of the product into the technical complexity of the application. Because you can have a complex or a simple product in a complex application. And that complex application may be that way because of mm -hmm. the nature of the of the product. You need a real technical wizard to install it. Or it might be service complexity where you know, an account manager or a, a delivery driver is out there, you know, fulfilling 
refilling bin boxes or vending machines, right? And so it's really com- the that complexity. And I think that was a breakthrough in our in our discussion because it just felt like, well, you can't just say it's the technical complexity of the product because there are a lot of simple products that are, you know, I mean, you know, building materials aren't complex products, but they're complex in terms of the way they're specified and the way that they're delivered and the way that they're, and because they wind up at the end good. And so that became better than a complex product as the bottom, as the horizontal axis. So I think, you know, Ian, this has been a really terrific discussion and, you know, we could, we could put more industry sectors on here and we could dice them and slice them in different ways. I think if we go back to the framework that you've created, what do we think this means for our, for our viewers and our listeners? How, what do people need to take away from this and how they think about their business? I think if I was running a distribution company right now, I would look to move into things that were more complex. I mean, more complex services and more complex products. You know, I'm, I'm doing, uh, I'm facilitating and presenting to the large distribution company roundtable of CEOs at NEW soon. Um, and a, a lot of my talk is that this notion that sales reps and digital channels are in conflict is a very, very destructive myth. Because if you have very, very highly value added sales reps and you have a really phenomenal service package, that doesn't mean you don't need great digital channels. And if you have great digital channels, that doesn't mean you don't need to add services in a big way because the quality of your digital channels is defined by competitors now. You, ha- you can't be terrible at it. You just can't be. You, you, but if you just rely on that, you're never going to be as good a company digitally as Walmart or Amazon business. So the, the, the big message is move away from commoditization, either in product and or service, and increase value add, increase things that have, increase places where you have more complexity, where the um, get it fast, you know, um, what, what you need, move away from what you need when you need it, right? We've yeah, I mean, that. yeah, if you look at the top right corner, and there are MRO distributors who are very simple, and it's all about, you know, pickpacking, shipping simple products and there are MRO distributors who are much higher value added and offer a lot of technical support. So, I mean, it's not, you, you can, you can probably change the business that you're in to make it more uh, or less vulnerable to these disruptors, but you have to move in to move away from commoditization. You're absolutely right. That's a long yes. So, so for each of these, that, that was a good long yes. Uh, for each of these sectors then, or for any sector, you need to figure out the part that is value added and start to align your company around that. That's going to mean, um, in the language of the death of a B2B salesperson, um, hiring salespeople, growing salespeople who are playing more of that consultative row, role, excuse me, uh, as opposed to order takers who are playing less of that consultative role, who are less able to engage in the in a complex customer or a complex application. Yes. Um, so, yeah, terrific. All right, good. Well, I'm going to wrap up now. I think we've uh, exhausted the, most of this discussion. We'd love to hear from anyone on the phone who are on the call who or on the podcast who has a different point of view. Oops. Um, but we'd like to point out uh, that we are Distribution Strategy Group. You can find us at distributionstrategy.com. Jonathan and I are in the middle of producing a seven-part series for the National Association of Wholesaler Distributors. 
Institute for Distribution Excellence, the third research report, how distributor customers will use technologies from their suppliers and who is winning is coming out on September 24th. That's when the webinar is going to be. The research report will be around that date. Two of these reports are already available, the coming storm of converging technologies and distributors' views on technology disruption and how to respond. You can get all of this material at naw.org. The top rotating banner has the information. We encourage you to download this information and attend the webinars. They're free. Uh, and uh, I'll be uh, facilitating along with Jonathan the next one. Um, and uh, we'd love to get your feedback on that as well as on the Wholesale Change Podcast. Come see us at distributionstrategy.com. Jonathan, it's been great working with you again today. Thanks for helping me put together this material. Uh, I think it was uh, interesting for us and hopefully useful for the audience. Pleasure as always, Ian. All right. Uh, we'll see you next week on Wholesale Change. Thanks so much for listening and watching and uh, send us your questions. Bye now. Yeah.